This morning, we're going to be talking about um, Matthew chapter 4. You guys can go ahead and turn there. And in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, we have the, the portion of Scripture where Jesus is tempted by the devil. This is that, that big thing. It's, it's the temptation of Christ. So we're going to be kind of getting into that. I want to talk a little bit about temptation in our lives. But before we do that, I want to go ahead and just start in with reading verses 1 through 11, and then we'll begin. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Lord, it is the measuring rod, Lord, that just keeps us straight, Lord. So often the public and public opinion and political correctness and society bend and skew, and, and they're built on sifting sand. But your word is a rock that we may anchor our souls to, Lord. You give truth, and you have authority, Lord, not just man, not who's in charge in the present uh, political term, but, Lord, your truth is steadfast. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but your word remains. The heavens and the earth may pass away, but your word will stand eternal. And so, Lord, we look to your word now to teach us, Lord, to build us, And Lord, I do ask that your Holy Spirit would come, the true teacher, the true counselor. Lord, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, that we might grow and be prepared for the day of battle. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So this morning, this morning we're going to be looking at the temptation of Christ, but in that we're going to be looking at the application for our own lives, is that the temptation that comes into our daily lives. Now, when when we look at temptations... Uh, there, there's all sorts, aren't there? Um, the first one that I think we're most, when we think of temptation, we think of like spiritual temptations, don't we? Right? We think of spiritual temptations, and uh, these are anything that would cause us to think or move in such a way that would displease the Lord or that would create a lapse in our closeness to our God, right? Uh, those are the kind of things like imagining um, uh, or acting in rebellion to what the Word of God declares. So it's like, you know, it's the things that, you know, we have laid out in Scripture, we have these things, we know these things, and it's, you know, when we rebel against what we know, when we rebel against what has been revealed to us, then we are acting in a spiritual rebellion that draws us away, that removes that spiritual closeness with our Lord. Uh, things uh, like pride. You know, the, the Bible says that pride, that, that's like the first sin. 
Uh, you have hatred without a cause. You have being unforgiving. Right? The Bible says that you're allowed to be angry, but sin not. You can be angry, but you have to forgive before the sun goes down. Don't let the sun set on your anger. So you're allowed to be angry for one day. Did you guys know that? There's boundaries on anger. You're allowed to be angry for one day. But then the Apostle Paul exhorts later, he just says, put away all anger and wrath and clamoring and things like that. He says, okay, you can be angry, but sin not when you do it. You're allowed to be angry for one day. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But it's better if you don't sin, that you don't uh, be angry at all. Why? Why? Because we're supposed to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to the wrath. Why? Because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Simple, right? Those are all things. Those are spiritual temptations. But we also have physical temptations, don't we? Um, these are more. These come more often, and they come in a, a myriad of different ways. Um, most of the time, we probably don't even realize that they're coming in in front of us. But um, and and they're not really necessarily sinful, are they? Uh, when we give into these everyday temptations, inadvertently we are actually practicing. We are perfecting giving in to temptation, though. Uh, it's just something to 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 keep in mind, to keep a thought on, because this gives rise when we on a daily basis given to physical temptations that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're there, then we're actually preparing ourselves, we're teaching ourselves to give in when it comes to the spiritual temptations as well. Um, examples. Uh, well, the whole ice cream issue, you know, that was one of them. If any of you guys saw my little teaser of the sermon on Facebook, I said, hey, you know, it's 10 a.m., uh, I'm preparing my message, and those gummy worms are staring me down right now. Right, just, just it, it's just kind of the concept. It's like now, now is eating gummy worms at ten a.m. a sin? Of course not. Now, at the same time, is it necessarily healthy and helpful for me? No, of course not. And you know, when, when that guy came and did my blood test and all that, I stepped on the scale and I was one sixty-seven. Now I usually float between one sixty and one sixty-five. That's a very comfortable weight. It's like, oh, I. I've been indulging a little bit more, you know, these last few months, and that's probably not good. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, it's time to, Heidi calls up my little switch. It's like, I decide that I'm not going to, that I'm going to lose some weight, and I do. And so I, I flip that switch, and so I'm sitting there typing, you know, this message out, and I, I, I'm, I'm looking right, right in my peripheral vision. There's those gummy worms, and they're calling out to me, Brian, we're good. And they're the sour ones, and those are the ones I like even better, right? And so it's like, oh, there they are. Now, giving in to gummy worms isn't a sin, is it? Eating them isn't a sin. So we take it for what it is. But what's another opportunity? Okay, what about when you've eaten your dinner and you're full and like you just take that one more scoop? Flop down. Like, I'm full. I don't need any more. I've had enough. And yet at the same time, I still feel this longing to, oh, it's so good. I just wanted one more plop. Here your arteries start hardening. Great. I love it. Uh, the dreaded red vines. I don't know if you guys know, but there is a stash of red vines in this church. There is. And, and, you know, Heidi hates red vines. She can't even stand the smell of them. But I don't know why. I like red vines. And I'll be sitting there in my office, and I'll be doing spiritual things, and I'll be praying. Sometimes I'm practicing, you know, like the worship set or something like that. Sometimes I'm, I'm even, like, talking on the phone with people, and, like, I can hear them calling. I can hear them calling, the red vines are here. Don't you want them? Come and eat. They're good. And it's like, I can hear those red vines calling from over there, and they're distracting. They're distracting to me. It's like, oh, those cursed red vines. Right? Um, another aspect. Let's get away from the whole food thing. See, you can tell I like food, right? So how about watching a movie when I haven't had a decent devotion? 
right? When it's just like, yeah, you know, I don't feel like reading the Bible right now. I'd much rather just veg out in front of a movie. And so I'm going to go and do that. So I'm going to give into that. It's like, I know I should go read my devotion. I know that I should sit down. And I know that if I watch this movie, it's already 930. It's going to be almost midnight by the time. And if I, when I come to my devotion, I'm going to be like, this. And I'm going to like fall asleep reading my devotion, right? Or I'll just say, forget it. I'll just do one in the morning. Okay, these are physical examples of temptations, little temptations where it's like, I know that they're not necessarily a sin, but at the same time, I know it's not necessarily good for me. And so there's like this battle in my soul. Well, what I want to make a, a point of is that our flesh doesn't care if it's physical or spiritual, does it? Our flesh does not care one bit whether it's physical or spiritual. It simply wants what makes it feel good. Amen? Right? Our flesh, whether it be bodily or spiritually, wants that which will make it feel good. Now, is that wrong? Is that a sin? Not necessarily, but it can be. It can lead to that. Because it's the same, the same urge that is present when the red vines are calling out to me, right? Any of you ever been on a diet before? Okay. When you're on the diet and your reason has told you, no, no, no. And yet your flesh is going, yes, yes, yes. Go get it. It's going to taste good. Right. That same urge when the physical temptation is there. Those of you who, who have lived in Orange any time, if you know anything about Troy's, right, sometimes Troy's, it's like the siren song of Troy's. Oh, right. And it's like when you're driving by it, you need to be tied down to your seat so you can't turn over. That's the Homer and the Iliad, if you guys have ever read that one. Anyway, it's like, like, like Troy's calls out to you. But see, that same urge is present there when you have that or, gentlemen, when there's a racy commercial, a pretty girl, or may, maybe some of you have dealt with pornography or things like that. And the same, ha, have you noticed it? It's the same urge. You kind of get it right here in your throat. And it's like, like, it's almost like your tongue starts salivating in the back of your mouth. And it's like th- those desires to do wrong are accompanied by the very same urge. It's the very same feeling as when you're hungry for red vines. See, because your body doesn't care, it equates the two together. It's that which brings me pleasure. That's all I want. It's interested in instant gratification. I want it now. Give it to me. I I love it. One of my very favorite things, uh, Josie, you guys know Josiah? Josiah Miller? I love him. He's great. he's, He's a great, just walking illustration for sermon stuff. It's fantastic. But he went through this phase where he would say, you know, daddy, I want this. And Bryson would say, sorry, Josie, sorry, pal. You know, no, you can't have that, but I want it. And then he'd say, no, no, you can't, but I want it. And he'd just keep saying, but I want it. And then Luke kind of caught it too for a little while. But like he would say this, but I want it. And I just sat there, I'd listen to Josie say that. It's like, dude, that is the perfect illustration of the flesh. No, you can't have it, but I want it. But I want it. And our flesh wants that. It just wants that. But I want it now. And thank, thankfully, and praise the Lord, it's the Spirit of God who speaks within us. He acts. He is our conscience. And he's the one who tells us, that's not such a good idea. That might hurt your wife. That might hurt your children. You don't want to do this. That's not pleasing to God. And thank the Lord that he is there, isn't he? Because and in the same way, it's the same way that our reason acts and, and tells us like eating a whole bucket of red vines might not be a good idea. You'll probably get a bellyache and all that red dye 40 is going to do something. Okay, It's going to do something. And so the Lord acts as our conscience. And 
Yet still, I have to wonder, as I was preparing this, I have to wonder, how prepared are we as a church to resist real temptation? Because, you know, a brownie, that's nothing. You know, it's like, oh, and yet how hard is it? Right? When you're trying to make sure that your blood is in good shape and a huge mountain of ice cream is placed in front of you, I could have said, oh, sweetheart, no, thank you. But I didn't want to hurt her feelings. You know me too well, don't you? Which are we more practiced to do? Which are we more practiced to do? Are we more practiced to give in to temptation, or are we more practiced in resisting temptation? What do you think? What do you think? I know personally, as I, like, I was really challenged by this text, it's like, dude, I'm really practiced in giving in because I have red vines almost every workday. Seriously. I go in there and I have my lunch. Like I eat a really small breakfast and so I can justify it in my mind. And then at lunchtime, like I wait. It's like, hey, but by lunchtime, I'm really hungry. I have my lunch and then I reach into that, to that stash and I pull out a handful of red vines and I go sit back down. And if it's a bad day, I'll go back for two. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. This is the question that came into my mind. This is kind of the, 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 this is like the whole premise of the study this morning. If Satan asked to sift you as wheat, like he did Peter, remember? Remember Jesus said that. He says, Peter, Satan has asked for you by name to sift you as wheat. And he said, but don't worry, I've prayed for you. Now that's not too reassuring to me. I don't know about you guys. Satan himself wants to tempt. Now I saw what Satan did to my bro Job. I was like, oh, But if Satan asked for you by name, if Satan asked to tempt you this day, how do you think you would fare? Now, remember, he is the tempter. He's even called that in this text today. And he's been about it for 2,000 years. Now, he had Adam and Eve, and they were sinless. And he still got them to sin against God. How prepare you this morning if Satan wanted you personally? Hmm. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now one thing, I don't know about you guys, the the first several times that I read this uh, particular chapter in the Bible, I never really caught it. Yet one time I read it and also I said, wait a, wait a second, wait a second. Did it just say what I thought it said? That the spirit of God drove him out into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil? Wait, 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 wait. Jesus taught us, the, well, he hasn't taught it yet. I guess maybe it comes later. He teaches us that the Lord's prayer and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one, depending on your translation. Like, what's that all about? And, and, you know, can the devil's malice, can his evil, can it be used to accomplish the good, notice that, the good and the perfect will of God? Well, you know, there's a lot of things that I don't understand about God and about his ways. And yet, I find some comfort in James chapter 1. You can flip there if you like, if you're fast enough. I'm just going to read it to you right now. James chapter 1, verse 12. It said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That means, oh, how happy is the man who endures temptation. 
For when he has been approved, that means proven, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So now, when we look at temptation, it's important to at least just kind of have a concept of this, is that, you know, does God desire for any of you to be removed from fellowship from him? Does he desire that you fall into sin and are destroyed? No, of course not. We, we know that by his character. We know it, you know, he bled for us. Why would he then try to drive us away from him? So God cannot be tempted by evil because he hates evil because he is good. And not only that, but he will tempt no one because temptation, what is temptation? Temptation is a, it's, it's trying to get somebody to move away from a place of righteousness to unrighteousness. That's what temptation is. Trying to move away from what you know is good and right to a place of what you know is wrong. That's what temptation is. So God, can God tempt you? No, absolutely not. And yet we have here in this verse, it says that he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Well, how do we reconcile that? Well, I don't know. I know that when Job, who I just mentioned, when, when he was tested by Satan, I know it wasn't Satan's idea. I know that God said, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, I just I, I can just imagine in heaven, it's like, oh, Lord, please don't pick a fight with the devil with me. Please don't pick a fight with the devil with me. I'm not that good. I'm not righteous above my generation like Job was before his. You know, I'm just a servant, and, and I know I'm wicked. I'm bad. Trust me. You, you can just tell him. He admits it. He knows it. And yet, at the end of Job's trial, you remember what Job said? Before my ears had heard, but now my eyes have seen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? The clue is here. It says that for when he has been approved, when he has been proven. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever like, taken pottery in high school or college. I did. I have a potter's wheel and a kiln and the whole bit. See, there's a, that being proven, it's like being put in the kiln. Right? In the kiln, it gets really hot. It gets really hot. And yet it cures the clay. So before, if you take a clay, you can form it into this beautiful form. You can carve it out. It can be intricate. It can be awesome, incredible. You can paint it and make it look really beautiful. But the moment you take water and pour it in that clay vessel, what's it going to do? It's going to melt. The whole thing is going to... And just, just like that, that sound and everything. Right? That's what it's going to do. And yet, then you take that same thing, you let it dry out in the sun, in the heat of the day, and you let it dry and get real... That clay gets really thirsty... And then from there, you take it and you put it into the kiln and then it gets, it gets baptized by fire. Sure enough, you ever looked into a kiln, it's hot. It's like white and orange and just glowing, right? It, it, it is intense. And if you get too close to it, you, you can literally burn yourself getting too close to the kiln, right? And yet that pot is inside there. And when that pot comes out, guess what? It's proven, it's proven. Now you can take it and you can pour water in it and it'll actually absorb. At this point, it'll still absorb a little bit of the water, but it will never melt again. And then the potter takes it. He says, you know what? It's not quite ready yet. Then you take it and you dip it into all these things. Like, it's like this gritty stuff um, called glaze and you dip it in there and you, and you, you design it like, and, and the glaze doesn't, it just looks like white, like white paste and pink paste. It doesn't look pretty at all. You're just like, oh, okay. And you put it in there and then you let that dry. And then you put it into a kiln again, and then you turn up the heat, 
way hotter than the last time. Really hot this time. And something happens. Even the water, the molecular water in that clay gets driven out of the clay. So there is no more water in it whatsoever. And it literally transforms. It is metamorphosized from clay to now stone. It's called stoneware. And the glaze and all that, all these beautiful colors now come out of that glaze. And that, that vessel now is proven. It's approved. You can pour water into it. You can put hot sauce in it. You can do whatever you want. Nothing's going to penetrate that jar ever again. It's sealed. Okay? Temptations have a way of doing that to the people of God. Temptations have a way. It, 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 it's, it's like the fire that we go through. And if we, when we resist, when we endure temptation, then we are approved. We will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Because see, see, God, he, he knows. He knows your heart. He knows if you love him. And if you love him, the temptation is not going to stumble you, is it? It never will, because you love him. And so he has no fears of saying, Satan, do your worst, because I know they, they love me. There's, there's no doubt in the Lord's mind. He's not like, oh, biting his nails. Uh, are they going to fall? Are they going to fall? Uh. We might feel that way sometimes, but he never will. Now, Christ is a little bit different than us because he himself is actually the figurehead of mankind in the same way. He's the last Adam. Adam was the first man, and Jesus is the last man. He's the final one. So he represents all of us collectively. And in order, Hebrews actually says that he had to be tempted in order that he might be a merciful. Don't you gl- aren't you glad that our high priest is a merciful high priest? And not just the letter of the law, which kills. They're guilty. Kill them. To hell they go. Like all those fire and brimstone preachers. Just like that. But no, because Christ, he had to be tempted as the figurehead of mankind. He represents all of us. Well, how could he represent all of us unless he's been tempted? And so the Spirit of God says, I'm sending my son. Have your worst, Satan. Here he is. Here he is, and Christ endured temptation that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to us. It is for our good that he was tempted. Verse 2 says, it says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Yeah, no doubt. Anybody ever here done a fast? Anybody here ever done a 40-day fast? Ain't no way. Mama don't play that game. No way. No way. Now, in, in order to do a 40-day fast, you have to know that you don't just one day just like fall out of bed and say, hey, I want to do a 40-day fast. That sounds like fun. Let's do it. That, that would be like the equivalent of saying, hey, you know what? I feel like running an Ironman today. And you've never worked out. You know, you, you, you've dipped into the red vines once too often. You've had the Klondike mountain of ice cream you know, last night and the whole bit. It ain't going to happen. You're going to kill yourself. I, I walked once. I didn't prepare myself. I was doing a prayer walk and I walked 18 miles. And I think, well, who cares? It's just walking, right? We can all just walk. Dude, by the end of it, my hip was like killing me. I felt like I was 80 years old. I'm literally, where's my walker? Where's my walker? It hurts. And I'm like literally just like in total pain. Well, I finished the walk. I sit down. I'm waiting for Heidi to come pick me up. And then she says, I can't get to where you are because there's a barrier down. You have to walk to where I am. I'm like, oh no, oh no. I tried to stand up. My legs were like they were on fire. You know, like the, the worst cramps you've ever felt in your life were my quads and my, um, and my calves. 
I was like in excruciating, and like Heidi saw me walking up and she was like, oh, Brian, when I was walking up, because I was like, I could just barely move my legs to get to where she was because she couldn't bring the car to where I was. Like it hurt. And then I got home and I, I ended up going and I took a nap because I was, I was pretty wiped out after my little walk. And I woke up, you know what I woke up? I was in, my body literally went into shock. I was, I, I had like a fever, like I was like, I was cold and shaking, and I was super thirsty. My body literally went into shock. And so then I, I, I ate some more salt, drank some more water, and then I, I got into the spa, and like, then all of a sudden I like leveled out and everything was good. Well, I talked to a, a walking friend of mine. She does like these big, long walks. She goes, you did what? She goes, don't you know? She goes, there's like milestones, you, you, and your body, you, you can do like seven miles, and then at seven miles is a wall, and you need to stop because then you, you, you like, your body releases all these endorphins and all that kind of stuff, and then you like don't go any further than that. Then you come back, and then you can do like, I think it's like 10, and then after that, it goes to like 17. She goes, you broke through three walls in one shot, so your body's released all these endorphins into your system, and yeah, you were in shock. Like that could have been really bad. I literally could have died. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. So you, you don't come to a 40-day fast without some preparation, building yourself up to it, um, working out the muscle of self-control, even just being able to allow your body to go through that. So we, we can see and we can infer in here that Christ now granted, yes, he is the son of God, but you, you have to know that he was somebody who was accustomed to denying himself. He was somebody who was practiced in fasting. And I have to kind of like bring this up right now. It's like, can regular fasting, can denying ourselves physical things actually prepare us for the spiritual battle that is ahead? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because like I said, you know, that, that same urge when, when you want the thing of ice cream, the brownie or the red vines, that same urge comes when we're tempted to do something else. Right? It, 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 it's the same. And, you know, we, we need to be able to prepare ourselves. We need to practice saying no. When our flesh, when our bodies say, I want that, and you say, no, but I want it. When you hear the little Josiah in your voice crying out, but I want it. You have to say, no, no, I won't. I won't. We, we need to strengthen ourselves. We need to strengthen our resolve in that. And if you actually look at um, another gospel in Luke chapter 4, when it has the temptation of Christ, we actually see something that we don't see here in Matthew. In Luke, we see that the devil was actually tempting Jesus all 40 days. Now, see, what we think here is that Jesus went out, he had a nice quiet time, he was praying, and just like enjoying himself, found a nice you know, shade under a palm tree or something like that, and he was just chilling out. No, no, the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and for 40 days, the devil was there tempting him. Can you imagine being under the devil's guns for 40 days? Now, how many of you here when you've done like a small fast, by the end of day one, what'd you feel like? Headache, stomach's like growling. It's hard to think. It's hard to concentrate. You're like, oh man, I'm going to die. When is this over? Right? That's what we feel like. Well, well, Jesus, he did this for 40 days. And, and the fact that the devil stayed right by his side for 40 days showed us a, a little bit of the character of the devil as well. He's relentless you know that about him? Do you know that he is relentless? 
He will not stop. He will continue to bombard you with trial after trial, with temptation after temptation. If you live in Southern California, it's like, anybody here ever seen Francis Chan? You see like, you see his thing on temptation? Did you ever see that one? Okay, so he has a fishing pole and he's like, you're like, hey, like doing an illustration of the devil. But then he says, but that's not really like Southern California at all. So he sets the fishing pole down and he picks up a hat. And on the hat, there's like a naked Barbie doll. There's a hundred dollar bill. There's like jewels. There's like all these things around it. He goes, this is more like what it's like living in Southern California. Everywhere you look, there's something. All right, well, that's just our, that's just our culture today, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. The devil is relentless and he will attack us from every angle when we are resting, when we are busy about the business, any of you ever been praying and all of a sudden like a thought or an image of something gross came into your mind? Unfortunately, I filled my mind with trash as a kid. Absolute disgusting trash. And I'll be praying like in, just in the Lord. And all of a sudden it's like, devil's like, hey, what about this one? Remember that? Boing! And all of a sudden this picture pops up in my mind. It's like, ah, Holiness to the Lord. I hate that. Ugh. But see, here's, here's an application for us this morning. We need to learn how to be satisfied with spiritual meat. See, Jesus, in his regular fastings, in his preparation, in his time, his communion with the Lord, because you read through the Bible, what do we see all the time of Jesus? He's always praying. He's praying with the Father. He goes away alone. He, go, he goes out, he dismisses the multitudes, and he goes up to the mountain to pray. Right? He, he was satisfied. He had learned to satisfy himself with the spiritual meat. And in John chapter 4, verse 32, it says, but he said to them, I have food. Now, this is after he spoke to the woman of Samaria. Remember, they went in to go get him some food. And he said to them, I have food to eat of, which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples, they're confused. They say to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Okay, that was the thing that satiated Christ's spirit, that satiated his full his soul was to do the will of his father. Can we say that here this day? When we are hungry for a Big Mac, can we say, oh, you know what? Doing something good for this person, that's enough. I don't need to eat. No, we say, no, give me the Big Mac so I can go do a better job at helping this person. That's usually what we what we say in our heads, don't we? But that wasn't Christ's mind. And then it says still, it says that. Uh, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now, this is an understatement. And, and unless you're familiar with fasting and even like long fast, this probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you. But something happens. Uh, my friend Anthony Dean, uh, the, at the time that I was doing the prayer walking, Pastor Joey was doing the prayer walking, Anthony decided to, uh, he was going to do a three-day fast. I think it was either three or two. I think it was three days. A three-day fast, no food at all. Okay. The first day, you get really hungry. You get a headache, kind of lightheaded. You know what he did the second day, the whole second day? He threw up. Just bile, just dry heaves. And like his body was in absolute rebellion. Like it's like a little, a little kid having a temper tantrum. His body's like, give me my food. You know, I, don't withhold that from me. And it's like having like this nasty, just conniption fit. The third day, he said he started to feel a little better. He was still hungry, but he stopped throwing up. And then when he ate, the, the first thing that he ate afterwards gave him a gnarly headache because also the rush of, of like nutrients back to his brain just like gave him a gnarly headache. Well, when you go on a long fast, say 40 days, you actually lose your hunger altogether. Your hunger goes away. Now, like I said, I don't know this by experience, but I've talked to guys who have and I've read about guys who have. 
So when you get into this fast, like you, you actually, by, the, by a certain point, you, you lose your hunger completely. But then when you come up right around 40 days, when you come to the end of that fast, something happens. All of a sudden, you become hungry again. But this is a hunger that you have never experienced in your life. When you talk, you know, we kind of glibly say, oh, I'm starving to death. You don't know what that means. Okay, starving to death. On the end of that 40 days, this hunger, this urge, this need for food comes stronger than you have ever felt any urge in your entire life. And here's the thing. If you don't eat, if you don't begin to take nutrients in, do you know what will happen? Your stomach will dissolve itself. It will literally consume itself trying to eat something. And then it doesn't matter at that point, even if you do eat, you're still dead. When you see the pictures of those children with the big swollen stomach, those children are dead. They're already dead because their stomach has dissolved itself. They've gone too long without food. It's a horrible thing. So when missionaries go, what they do is those kids, like moms will come, they'll have those kids, and they'll set them aside, they'll share the gospel with them, but they won't give them any food. And the moms are like, why, why? And it's like, it's too late. It's too late. And so the ones who haven't gone too far, they'll give them food and begin to bring them back. Okay, That's where Christ is in this story. That's where he is. He, it says, when he, and then he hungered. That is that insatiable, burning appetite that is greater than any longing you can imagine. He had to eat. And in this, I love this, because Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. He knows. He's experienced temptation. And he knows what it is to be tempted in his greatest weakness, when we are at our greatest weakness. And he knows what it is to be tempted during our greatest longing. He knows. From the first day when it's only mere desire, oh, that Klondike of ice cream sounds really good, to the middle of a fast when, when the fast has its teeth in you, and it's like you're really longing for something. Anybody's ever given up something? And like you talk to guys who are addicted to pornography, and it's like, like there's like, like they do well, and all of a sudden you come to this point where all of a sudden it's like, then all of a sudden it gets its teeth in you again. It's like you're really hankering for it. You really want it. Jesus knows. And then you come to the, pay, the place at the end of the fast when it's like, if you don't fulfill it, you will literally die. He knows. He knows. And that is very comforting to me because he doesn't call me to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. That makes a difference, doesn't it? In verse 3, it says that now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you were the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And we're going we're gonna to speed up, don't worry. But we're, we're kind of like laying the foundation of the, of the fullness of this study. But notice what he's called. He's called the tempter. Right? Satan has a lot of names. Satan means adversary, the tempter. He's the dragon of old. He used to be Lucifer, shining one. Right? There was all of those things. But in this one, he's called the tempter. And it's important that we, we distinguish now just a real quick thing between temptation and trials. Oftentimes, we get those kind of mixed up, don't we? We, we kind of use them interchangeably, but they're actually not. Because a trial sometimes has a way of escape, right? And other times, it doesn't. Whoa, 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 whoa. First Corinthians chapter 10, remember? Yeah, I remember. It's misquoted often. See, a trial sometimes has a way of escape, but sometimes it doesn't. And you think, well, what do you mean? Anybody ever 
watch Voice of the Martyrs, get the magazine, read any of the stories, those people had trials, didn't they? Did they overcome or escape the trial? No. They shed their blood for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them escape and go on and continue being ministers of the gospel. Some don't. Some don't. Okay, temptation now. There's always a way out of temptation. Okay, trials, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Temptation, always yes. And this is that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So you think, oh, nobody in the whole world has ever been tempted like I am. Yes, you have. You're not tempted in any different way than everybody else. Okay, get over it. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted. What is temptation? It's the move away from God. He says, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, there's the devil, the tempter, with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So when, when you say, oh, I'm being tempted, I, I just have to give in. You know, I, I come to the three-month mark and then, ah, no. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, I don't. Okay? It's important just to understand that, the difference between temptation and trials. But in in this, it also says that I want to kind of like just paint a picture now real quick. The the location of this temptation. Do you guys guys remember where it is? Where did the Spirit drive Jesus out to? The wilderness. The wilderness. That's right. Well, what's the wilderness? Well, if you go from Jerusalem and you go down, down, down about 2,000 feet down into where the Dead Sea is, there is this wilderness down there that's where, you know, it's really gnarly. You can get to like 130 degrees, like in the sun. It's like really excruciatingly hot. There's not a lot of plant life down there. There's a lot of rocks and a lot of salt. Does that sound comforting? No, it's not. I've been there. Um, This wilderness is a place of solitude. He's alone. He's isolated. There's no resources. There's no help. That's where this temptation takes place, this first temptation. And he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So now, what's the goal of, of the devil right here? His goal is to get Jesus to obey him rather than the Father. Right? I want you to obey me. And what is his strategy in this? Uh, number one, remember he said, if you are the son of God. Well, when somebody says, if, remember with Adam and Eve, he said, did God really say you shall not eat of every fruit in this garden? What was he trying to do? He was trying to cause doubt, right? He was trying to cause doubt. Now, you kind of think, well, yeah, but this is Jesus. He is God. Okay, well, he's the God man for sure. And the devil, he's not going after the God portion of Jesus' character, is he? That would be foolish. He's going after the man because Christ is fully man and fully God. And so he's singling out the man, Christ Jesus. He's going after it. And so he's trying to cause doubt if you were the son of God. And I'm sure he put a little emphasis on it. If you were the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And in that wilderness, there's a lot of stones. Trust me, that would be a, that would be like a, a panaderia. That'd be like a huge bread shop. Okay. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get Jesus to obey in order to prove to himself, like he's trying to get Christ, like he's trying to cause Christ to doubt himself. He's trying to get him to obey the devil by trying to prove himself, trying to prove to himself that he is the son of God. If you are the son of God, do this. Now, 
I didn't say it was a good strategy. I just, I mean, like, he's just trying to cause doubt. It's what he's doing, right? But then also, he's trying to incite his flesh, right? He, he's, think about that as an insult. If you're the son of God, then do this. He's trying to incite his pride. He's trying to get it to swell up within him that he would, like, he would literally obey the devil in order to prove him wrong. What do you mean, if? If. Of course I'm the son of God. I know who I am. I'm going to prove it to you. Right? That's what he's doing. That's what he's trying to do. Also, he's trying to use his weakness against him. Right? This portion. Now, he'd been tempting him the whole way, but now he comes to the end of fast, and he waited for the opportune time. He waited for when that hunger started just like going crazy within him. And he says, turn this bre- these stones into bread. He's inciting his hunger, right? He, he's, he's trying to get his hunger to override his knowledge of the truth. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever done any studies on hunger and things like that. Uh, my friend, Pastor Joey, uh, he did a whole study on hunger. And it, it, they literally, he, he found this experiment that scientists did. It was a hunger deprivation thing. And so what they did in a controlled environment, they had like three guys, and they literally began just lowering the calorie count. Not, not, they didn't just like cut off all the food, but they began to just bring it down, 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 where they began to becoming more and more emaciated. They began to get more and more like when you see um, in you know, the pictures of the Nazi Germany and the Jews, like they began to become more and more emaciated. And all of the men, because they were asking them questions, writing down the things, and all of those men, do you know what happened to them? They all began to have dreams about eating the other men. They all began to begin having like, um, hallucinations. They all began to be going crazy, hearing voices, things like that. And they were all radically embracing this thought of eating the other people. Okay, they've lost reason, haven't they? When we read in the Old Testament and we see when the, the sieges are around Jerusalem and the moms come and say, hey, you know, we, made a, we made a pact that you know, we're going to kill my baby first and eat my baby, and then tomorrow we are going to eat her baby, but we ate my baby, and now she, she hid her baby, so we can't eat it. And you just sit there and go, what? It's exactly what's going on. Satan is trying to use Jesus' weakness, the weakness of his humanity right now against him. You're hungry. You're starving. Make these stones bread. Just do it. He is trying to cause Jesus to change his beliefs. He's using his beliefs to try to override what the truth is. And um, basically, in the, you, you can just imagine him, him trying to incite Christ to have something like, my father doesn't want me to die, does he? My father knows, my father loves me, and of course my father isn't going to make me you know, go through this excruciating uh, want. There's no way. And th- this is a way that the devil actually does uh, try to come after us many times, is, is, is he strikes us in this way. He, he tries to get our belief to override the truth. In verse 4, Jesus answers, and he says, uh, but he, he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Know the difference between the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. Like Christ knew. The life of the flesh, it needs food, it needs that kind of stuff. The life of the spirit needs the word of God. Which is more important? Which is greater? The life of the spirit. The life of the spirit is of greater importance than the life of the flesh. It is a greater reality. It is eternal. It is heavenly. Just to put it in perspective, it's a mansion 
instead of a tent. Okay, That is the more important thing. Verses 5 through 7, it says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, there it is again, If, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, in this one, what's the location? It's the holy city. It's Jerusalem. It's a public place. It's a religious place. It's the place where the priests uh, would stand to watch for the sun in order to, uh, to begin the morning offerings. It's the place where all of those who would later oppose him would see this sign that he's about to tempt him with and that they would actually welcome him as the Messiah. Right, the pinnacle, you, know, you can imagine him like, I think oftentimes we think of Jesus up at the very top, the roof of, of the temple. But the only problem with that is that the roof of the temple was covered with golden spikes. You guys ever been to Costco? See all those little spikes? What, were the, what are the spikes there for? To keep the birds off, right? So the birds don't make a mess on you. Okay? So on top of the temple, that, that technology is thousands of years old, just in case you didn't know. On top, on the roof of the temple, are, were literally thousands of golden spikes to keep the birds from, from landing on top of the roof of the temple. Okay, so it probably wasn't that. This word pentacle, it, it literally means, or pinnacle, it literally means wing. Okay, if you look at the temple, there's also these porches that come out from the temple that look an awful lot like wings. They, they, they kind of come forward, they stretch forward like this beyond the temple itself. Uh, one of them's on the north side, one of them's on the south side. The one on the north side, it's about 50 feet from the top of the porch down to the, um, to, to the inside of the court. The one on the south side, Solomon's porch, that one is about 65 feet. It's a little bit higher. And that's the one that the priest, there's a stairway that leads up to the top of it, to the roof of it, where they would look out and wait for the sun to rise before they start the morning offerings. Now, it's 65 feet to the inside of the temple. If you go to the outside down and you, go, you follow it all the way down the retaining wall, it's about 150 feet. And then from there, that's also because Mount Moriah is a, it's a mountain, right? It's a hill. And if you continue down past the retaining wall all the way to the bottom of the valley, it's about 700 feet. The historian Josephus said that if you stood up there and you looked down, you would get dizzy, right? That's how high it was. So where exactly is he? Is he on the roof and it's just like a vision? It's a spiritual thing, maybe. Is he on the pinnacle on Solomon's porch facing the inside? Is he on Solomon's porch facing the outside? That's up for conjecture. I'm just giving you the info, okay? Now, from there, what's the goal of this? In verse 6, he says, if you are God, throw yourself down. What is he trying to do? He wants Jesus to obey him rather than waiting for God the Father to glorify him. He says, look, if you throw yourself down right now, they will all see this great miracle. You will survive. The angels will catch you. And gosh, guess what? You, you, you're going to basically force God's timetables on his glorification of you. And not only that, but here's the strategy. He's going to appeal to your desire to be accepted. He's going to remove the conflict, right? The priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, all these people who are going to come against him. He says, all of them will welcome you now. He says, and that will also remove the hatred. The, the men who incite the crowds to say, crucify him. All of them will be your strongest supporters if you do this thing. And not only that, but he also appeals to Christ's love of the word. He quotes scripture, doesn't he? He quotes scripture. And what does he do, though? He makes a wrong application. And even though 
it's a wrong application. See, it seems logical within the context that he gives, doesn't he? See, he pulls it out of its actual context, and he says it this way. It's like, hey, look, it's, an, it's a logical thing. They're going to keep they're, they're going to keep you. They're not going to let you dash your foot against the stone. So if you throw yourself off the building, then they will certainly catch you. They, they won't let you do that. And Jesus, he says, it is written. It is also written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And here's the application. Know the word of God. Know the proper application. Understand context within the totality of Scripture. That way when the devil comes and he tries to get you to force God's hand, because we're, none of us are very patient, are we? We don't like to wait for God. I can tell you what, with a girl with cancer waiting for the miracle, it's tough. You know, I want to try to force God's hand, but I can't. I can't. And the devil would come to me and say, Brian, do this instead. Do this. Haven't you heard? What about this? No, no, I won't. If you love the Lord with all of your heart, then you will not try to manipulate him or force him to adhere to your will. You will agree with Christ in the garden when he said, not my will, but thine be done. Verses 8 through 10. It says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, where's the, where's the location on this one? Now, I don't know about you. I've never heard of one exceedingly high mountain that from which the pinnacle of you can see the entire world and all of the kingdoms of the world and all of the glory. I, I have a feeling that this is a vision. Right, the, the devil is taking Christ in the vision onto this great high and lofty mountain where he looks down and sees all of the glory of all the kingdoms of all of the earth. Now, anybody here ever been up on the top of a really high mountain? And when you looked out, what did you say? Whoa, well said. Exactly. You're overwhelmed. The staggering beauty of it all, the glory, the majesty, when you're up that high and you're looking down and you can see the curvature of the earth and you just go like, I feel so small. This is beautiful. This is breathtaking. It's overwhelming. Verse 9, what did he say? He says to him, all these things I will give you, all of the kingdoms and all of their glory, if you will fall down and worship me. What was the goal? He wanted Jesus to worship him. Worship me. What's the strategy? Well, he's offering the title deed of the earth. What does that mean? Well, God made Adam and Eve, uh, he gave them dominion over the earth. It belonged to them. They were to tend it. They were to keep it. And when they obeyed Satan rather than God, they made themselves the servants of Satan. The scriptures even said it's in Romans where it says that, you know, whoever you serve, you make yourself a slave to that person, whomever you serve, right? Adam and Eve did that. They lost the authority over the earth. Satan now has it. Notice Jesus does not say, oh, it's not yours. You can't give those to me. It's inferred that he's telling the truth. All of these things I will give you. He's offering the title to the earth. Why? What's the temptation of that for Christ? No cross. No cross. What, What was the cross? The blood of Christ, it redeemed. He's the kinsman redeemer. If you know anything, you read back and you go to the book of Ruth and and Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. In order to purchase back um, Ruth to himself, what did he also have to buy? The land. The bride and the land were connected to each other. And so Jesus on the cross is purchasing back the earth and the fallen bride, us, the church. Right? That's what he was doing. And so that's the temptation. Don't go to the cross. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. 
But in verse 10, what does he say? Away with you, Satan, exclamation point. Away from me, Satan. Hate evil. Guys, hate evil. When the mere mention of evil comes into your ears, when just like the faintest glimpse of evil comes into your eyes or into your mind, do you hate it? Do you hate it? Does it make you disgusted? It should. It should. We, like Christ, should be revolted at the very mention of worshiping anything or anyone over the Lord himself. They think, oh, I don't worship anything. Oh, really? What about pensions? What about cars? What about the golf range? What about fill in the blank? There's lots of things that we can put above God. Entertainment. Big one in our culture, for sure. So I ask you this question. Do you hate evil? Right? Have you pondered the effects of evil in people's lives? Have you seen it? I've personally witnessed what evil has done in many people's lives and the brokenness and how it tears them down and it just robs them of so much. Right? Whenever I talk to guys, and I'm kind of banging the whole pornography drum because it's, it's literally a plague in our culture. And I ask guys all the time who are struggling with it. I have for years. Do you, how can you take pleasure in the very sin that is damning that woman to hell? The very thing that Christ bled and died on a cross nearly 2,000 years ago for her to redeem her from that. You are taking pleasure in it? How dare you? How dare you? No. We need to hate evil. We need to ponder those things. And finally, worship is holy. Worship is holy. It belongs to one and only one, the Lord himself. It's sanctified. It's like the treasure of Jericho when Joshua came into the land conquering. It's his. It's his alone. Finally, in verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Resist the devil, and he will flee. God knows what you need. He knows when you need it. He has your mortal life and your eternal destiny all in his view. Will you trust him? How do you overcome temptation? Trust God. That is what Christ is showing us here. He's he's quoting the word. He, He understands the importance of the spirit over that of the flesh. Not only that, he he will not force God's timetables, and he knows the word. He keeps it in context. And not only that, he despises evil. He loves his father. He trusts him. And it's like, you know, the reality is, if Christ does not eat at this moment, he will die. And nevertheless, what Jesus is essentially saying, though the Lord slay me, yet will I praise him, just like Job. Even if I have to die, I will not dishonor him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same thing. Our God can deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we will never bow down to your idol. Trust God. Father, we love you so much. Lord, we just glory in the fact that you know. Lord, we we glory in the fact that you saved us. Lord, that you went through all the temptations. Lord, you know the trials. And yet, Though the devil came with the worst that he had, Lord, that he came with all that the world has to offer, yet you overcame the world. And so, Lord, when we face our tribulations, Lord, when we face our temptations, 
we can look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, our great, our merciful and faithful high priest, and know that we are more than conquerors in you. We trust you, Lord, and we trust your goodness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a fantastic week, and hopefully I'll see you soon.